This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Clary Groen. Clary is the Vice President of Real Estate of Lovesack, a really exciting brand. He's been in the retail real estate industry for 20 plus years. Excited to have him on the show. Welcome, Clary. Hey, thanks, Chris. Appreciate you having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you're up to these days? Well, like you said, I'm Vice President of Real Estate at Lovesack. I've been in the the retail real estate world for for 20 plus years. I cut my teeth early on as a financial analyst out of out of undergraduate school at Payless Shoe Source and worked a lot with the real estate team at that time uh, in that role and 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 really gravitated toward the work that they do and and enjoyed um, partnering on special projects and, and things in my in my finance role and transitioned into real estate uh, three years or so later and and you know been been at the game ever since um, so I've had successfully progressive uh, roles with uh, companies like Chico's and I uh, was the first head of real estate at Francesca's and started there in 2008. We had a, a great run where we uh, we opened uh, 500 or so stores while I was wow. there. Went public in 2012. Um, and then I left and, and went to Blue Mercury, uh, which is a cosmetics and skincare retailer and was the first head of real estate there and kind of set up the department processes and and, and that was a lot of fun and then uh for four years i was in consulting and had my own uh my own company worked with a variety of retailers uh, which i really enjoyed um uh, and then uh one of my clients uh during that period was lovesack and i was doing a lot of uh, strategic work for them and and um a lot of um, thinking about the future and how they wanted to expand their brand. And, and after a few months and working with them, they said, uh, you know, have you ever thought about coming back on the retailer side and leaving your consulting business? And I said, yeah, for, you know, I think for the right company and the, you know, working with the right people and I'd be, I'd be really interested. And they said, well, you know, we're thinking about us um, because like, Blue Mercury before that and Francesca before that, they had no internal real estate um, department and wanted someone to come in and 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 set that up and and bring it in-house versus outsourcing it to third party. So um it, it was a it was a very unique opportunity because um we basically had had a, a year-long interview process, right? Where I was doing consulting work for them. So I got to know them inside now pretty well they got to know me inside out pretty well and, and you know we, we felt like it was a it was a great fit and so i started there in september of of 2019 and so uh, you know 15 months or so in and it's been a you know it's been a great ride uh COVID obviously is uh has uh you know magnified certain uh problems and situations um much more so than would have happened otherwise but um, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of the company and, and really blessed that uh, they wanted me to come on board. Well, that's great. Now that you're there, the back end of 2020 and the early end of 2021, we're in a new world. Things are a little different, but Lovesack's been, 
you know, doing pretty well. You guys have made some splashes in the news lately, and the stock has taken off since the beginning of the year. What's going on at Lovesack? What are you guys doing, and what do you think is the secret to the success right now? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, uh, Chris. I think when the when the pandemic hit, um, I think for, for me and I think for a lot of uh, friends of mine and colleagues in the business, it was maybe akin to other momentous occasions in life where we 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 know where we were when, right? And I remember where I was when it seems like the 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 COVID crescendo really hit uh, the second week of March, and um, boy, it was it was uh, you know I remember it like it was yesterday, and and as a as a company we we recognized, I think, pretty quickly that this was a, you know, it was a very serious situation. I think early on in January and February, we thought that, you know, we started to see some supply chain issues out of, out of um, China, where we source, you know, 30 to 40% of our product. And uh, we're monitoring that situation very closely. And of course, it, it, you know, blew up into what it, what it had become and what it still is, unfortunately, today. But you know, over the successive number of months from March on, um, you know, we started to find out pretty quickly when when our stores were mandated to close that almost all of the business from our showrooms, as we call them, uh, had transferred to to online. So many retailers were seeing significant increases in their online business over that period of time in the summer of 2020. Uh, you know, it was not uncommon to read about uh, apparel brands that were up 50 to 70, 80%. Um, but our e-commerce business was up, you know, much, much higher than that. I was able to overcome the revenue shortfall from the closed stores. So our, our, our theory behind the success during that time period, and really, which has continued on to today, is that there's so many people that are at home and they're uh, working from home, and as they look around their 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 houses, you know, their places of residence, they're 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 looking for things that they can change or improve upon, whether it's the paint color of a room or adding a you know, a couch, which benefits us in our case, or that fence project they hadn't gotten to. So those home improvement players and home furnishings um, uh, retailers like us have have definitely benefited from this um, this pandemic. It's a, it's a great point. You know, it, it, Don, I mean, we should back up for a second. For those who don't know, who is Lovesack? It's a home furnishings and, and home accessories retailer. Uh, we went public in uh, 2019. Uh, um, we have just over 110 showrooms across the country. And uh, as I mentioned, a, a you know, pretty explosive e-commerce business as well. Um, early on when the company was founded uh, 25 years ago, it was really based on on one product, which were foam filled beanbags, essentially. Um, and so uh, many uh, consumers still recognize the brand from those early days, but we've 
uh, morphed and developed into a much more dynamic retail concept um, over the last uh, five or six years, which really has been um, fueled by uh, our sectional couch, which is a modular couch that can be um, uh, manipulated and, and changed into different configurations. Um, we also have a design for life philosophy, which is that you can purchase a couch from us and it'll be the only couch you ever, ever really need uh, because it can be manipulated and it can grow with you, whether you're an apartment moving to a house or from a house down to an apartment. You can add pieces to it. You can change the fabric out over time. It's washable, it's durable. And um, it's also environmentally sensitive because the fabric that we have over the, the couch frame is made from recycled plastic bottles. And so we have a, you know, a, you know an environmental um, um, belief that, that uh, buying a couch with us will prevent the uh, discarding of couches that go into landfills and, and, and the like over time as well. So, um, you know, it's like I said, one couch you can buy and it's, it's, you know, completely adaptable. So, uh, I think people today who are more environmentally conscious, uh, really like that about our brand and, um, you know, it's definitely showing in the, in the sales results. You know, it's an interesting story because you go from, a a brand with one product. And as you're growing, you realize you, you guys are good at that, but can't just be one product. And now you've morphed into a whole home furnishings, home accessory, and that has really exploded, enabled you to all go public and, you know, continued growth. And how big are these showrooms? So the showrooms are small, Chris. I mean, they're 1500 square feet or so. And, and they're really just that. I mean, if you want to come in and uh, walk out with a, you know, a sectional same day, it's just not going to happen. So you come in, you meet with a, with a showroom manager and they show you the, the modular functionality of, of the sectional, uh, the different fabric swatches you can have. And they talk through the, this environmentally conscious approach that we have to commerce and, and capitalism. And, um, and then uh, once that order gets placed, then um, the product gets shipped to you FedEx within, you know, a couple of weeks. So it's because of the model, the pandemic actually helped fuel this interest in our brand, because for the most part, it's touchless and you know, the product would be delivered to be delivered right to your front door. So we, we look at these showrooms as touch points for the consumer. And we've explored other touch point options, you know, in the last year or two to reach more and more consumers, such as uh, testing shop and shops with a handful of Macy's locations across the country, uh, testing shop and shops with Best Buy um, uh, across the country. Uh, doing road shows with Costco, where we would set up in Costco's, you know, dozens of Costco's at a time throughout the country for 30 days, um, and then generate revenue and and also, uh, more importantly, brand awareness with consumers. And then after that 30 days is over, the shop and shop gets packed up and then transported to to another Costco. 
Um, so through all these different touch points, we've been able to, to really work toward increasing, um, you know, brand awareness, aided and, and unaided brand awareness um, across the United States, which is which has helped um, us, you know, achieve the success that we have so far. That, that's really smart play to grow brand awareness. The you mentioned, you know, getting into to grow brand awareness. Who is the core consumer for uh, LoveSack? Who who is your primary customer? Yeah, it's you know, it's a it's a diverse customer base. Um, you know, we we do a tremendous amount of research on really understanding who the consumer is, and our, our business development group does a phenomenal job working with third party vendors to not just identify who these customers are, but but how their shopping patterns change on a week-to-week basis. Um, but kind of in a nutshell, the customer is, you know, a, a more affluent, um, they're more affluent from a from a, an average household income perspective. So greater than $100,000, um, they're aspirational, uh, generally professional. Um, and, you know, the age range is, you know, as low as the 25 to 30 range up. And the great thing about our product is that, again, you can buy a couple of seats and sides and just have a small love seat to start if you're in a small apartment in the city. Um, but then as you, you know, meet a significant other, your family grows, you move to the suburbs and you buy a larger house, you can add pieces to it, buy additional fabric, and then the next thing, and reconfigure it to meet the the different needs you have for various rooms in your house. So, it's product that can grow with the customer over a long period of time. And like we said, we we hope it's the only couch you'll ever buy. Fantastic. You all have been growing a lot in enclosed malls over the years, and some what I'll call urban high street real estate. Has your real estate decision started to morph at all given the pandemic and the move to e-commerce and some of the growth in the open air shopping with as consumers might not want to be in enclosed spaces? It's a good question. You know, when I started the the consulting work for uh, for LoveSack a couple, you know, two, two and a half years ago, and I recognized at the at the time, I think the company maybe had 75 locations. They were exclusively in enclosed malls. And, um, you know, from my background with, with Chico's and Francesca's, um, you know, my philosophy was, you know, has been and still is and, and was, you know, during, during these conversations with LoveSec during my consulting period, was that we really needed to diversify that that real estate type, that base, um, because some customers shop malls, some customers shop street locations, some customers shop lifestyle centers. Um, it's just, you know, it's all across the board. So I emphasized at the time that we need to start exploring other real estate types and um, not get away from malls necessarily, but broaden the scope of opportunities that that are out there um, and with that instead of limiting our growth potential to x number of stores we could increase it to x plus y number of stores and so 
when I when I was hired in September of 19, we started to embark for the 2020 uh, year with the deals that we were focusing on. Uh, we were, we were focused on, 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 on doing just that, which was looking at high street locations and lifestyle centers. And so despite the pandemic this past year, we ended up opening 18 locations. Congrats. Uh, we just fell shy of the pre-pandemic target of 20 that we had told analysts and investors. Um, but we had many, many more locations that were lined up that were a real estate committee approved that um, we just didn't get the leases signed um, prior to the pandemic hitting. So for those 18 deals that we had leases signed, we moved forward, we opened them successfully. And then with the other ones that we had in the pipeline that were real estate committee approved, but leases not signed, we're able to push those and front load our openings for, for this current year, 2021. Um, but in 2020, pre-pandemic, we'd already set in motion approvals for deals that were in, uh, you know, better lifestyle centers across the country, and then better high street locations like the Upper East Side Manhattan, Fulton Market in Chicago, uh, 14th Street in Washington, D.C., and had the wheels in motion for a number of other locations in 2021 that were lifestyle center and, and high street. Other high street locations will open in 2021, include Montana Avenue in Santa Monica, California, and Boylston Street in Boston and others. So, and a lot of great dynamic lifestyle centers as well. So um, we were, I think, ahead of any potential um, hypotheses that people may have about consumer shopping and maybe getting away from enclosed malls. Uh, we're certainly certainly not abandoning abandoning them, but we feel like there's more opportunity for us to expand as a brand in non-mall locations going forward than probably in closed malls. Do you do you think that you will land in some of the if the market demographics are right in some non-lifestyle locations that are outside of malls? You know, say some dynamic power center that has a great lineup? Yeah, we do. As a matter of fact, we've talked about it quite a bit. We we don't have any, let's say, pad sites in front of power centers or you know, in super regional trade areas like where maybe there is a mall, but there's you know strip life um, strip retail in front with high traffic, high visibility. But we think there is uh, you know, there are untapped trade areas out there for us to explore that fit just that criteria. And we're starting to look at those very closely. Um, and our plan is to test a couple of those, hopefully in 2021. And, and you're, in, you're experienced in it. You were at Payless, you were at Chico's, who's done those types of locations as well. Yeah. And, and you know, there there's definitely a a, a place, I think, for us to explore that. You know, I've got a good friend that's a head of real estate at Sleep Number, and they have migrated outside of malls over the last several years to a lot of um, freestanding locations, pad sites, um, you know, junior center type type deals. And, you know, I've learned quite a bit from them as to uh, the financial implications of doing that uh, from a revenue and profitability standpoint, but also from a 
um, you know, a proximity to the consumer. You're taking that location outside of an enclosed environment. You're moving it to a location that is maybe closer proximity to where they're walking or, or driving and in increasing that brand awareness, you know, as a result, their, their results speak for themselves. And I think we can learn a lot from that. And, um, you know, it's a departure from what we've done in the past. So it takes a little bit of, uh, you know, I think intestinal fortitude to get people to see that opportunity in the same way. But I, I think we're there and, and I look forward to, to testing a few of those to see how they perform. And, you know, if, if they work as well as I think they will, then that's just going to add even more, um, you know, showroom opportunities for us to expand into across the United States. Yeah, I, I could even I could even see you all in some center next to like a, you know, even a Whole Foods or some great grocer like that, you know, in a Wegmans anchored center or something like that, or the, the shop rights in the Northeast that are in locations in those markets and whatnot. And uh, I think you guys would, you know, share some customers there and benefit from the the regular foot traffic. So I don't know if you agree with that or not. But. I agree with you a hundred percent. And like yeah. I said, there, there are a lot of untapped trade areas across the country. And that's the way we look at, you know, we look at our showrooms and these shop and shop opportunities and the things we've done with Costco as touch points. It's a, it's a, it's an opportunity for the consumer to, see us learn about the brand. They get very inquisitive when they see the video loops that we have in our stores, or they see this product that's kind of broken out and displayed, at least in our showroom storefronts, because they're like, you know, what is this? We've never seen anything like that before. And that's the hook. And when we get them in the stores and they meet our dynamic store associates and they start explaining this modular furniture and how it works and how it's so adaptable, um, you know, it leads to increased conversion rates and, and, you know, to touch on something else that we, we, you know, alluded to before during the pandemic, when we started to reopen our showrooms, um, you know, we were appointment only for, for a long period of time, right. For the health and safety of our customer, as well as for uh, health, health and safety of our associates. And what we have seen is, is pretty interesting and phenomenal, which is, you know, furniture is a high ticket purchase. And so customers, particularly during the pandemic, because they're, they're at home, doing a lot more research online. And so they were learning about us, they were learning about restoration hardware, crate and barrel, whoever. So doing a lot of diligence online versus maybe going into the stores, you know, one to the other to the other. And so they educated themselves. They got very knowledgeable about the different options out there. And when they sought us out, at least during the pandemic, to make that appointment, they were already pretty well versed about who we are and what we do and what our product offering is. So then when they came in the store and they were able to interface with a with a you know with a with an associate, um, our conversion rate was extremely high because of that. So even though traffic was down during that, that time period and still is down, at least uh, you know, primarily in closed malls, we were able to offset it to a large degree with much higher uh, conversion rates. 
That's great. That's good news. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Did did the Best Buy and Costco, did you share some customers there and did that work for you all? Yeah, you know, Costco has been an ongoing relationship for the last three years or so. And um, there's a lot of bodies that go through. <laughs> yeah, there is. Yeah. Um, you know, with the company that you have and, and, and that you're with, um, probably a lot more about the average volumes of Costco's. Sure. You know, tens of millions of dollars on average that these things generate. And so a lot of bodies coming in and generally they're placed in more affluent um, trade areas for the most part. So we did see quite a bit of overlap with our customer and the Costco customer. And that's why that relationship has been so successful. You know, Best Buy is a little bit different because we've tested three of them. We've got a fourth one opening up in the American Dream project where Best Buy is, is opening, but hasn't yet. And these were done as a test to see um, how the, you know, the younger, more tech savvy consumer, um, you know, feels about purchasing furniture in, in a, in an, an electronic store like that. So early results, again, in, you know, uh, pandemic impacted, but we, we started um, over a year, just over a year ago with them, with the three um, and pandemic aside have been really successful. And so, you know, we're, we're looking toward, um, you know, future opportunities with them now that the dust is starting to settle with, um, uh, at least 2020 is over with dust isn't settled with the pandemic yet, but we, you know, people are starting to adapt and figure out ways to, to live their lives and operate their businesses. And, you know, we think there's, there's more, uh, opportunity with them in the future. Um, so that's great. The, and one last thing before we move on, can I get love sack at other retailers or other than the shopping shops, or is it, I have to go to love sack. So we're on Costco.com. We're also on BestBuy.com as part of those partnerships. We also launched a pilot with Wayfair um, three or four months ago. Um, so there are those three online type of uh, you know retailers that that offer our product. Um, but I would say the best the best place to to buy our our product is in showrooms where you can interact with a you know with a store associate with a showroom associate. Uh, or from our website directly. Yeah, you you all were direct to consumer before direct to consumer got this buzz and was hot word. Yeah, I mean honestly, you know we we have been a a benefactor, um, fortunately, of the events that have taken place over the last few months, and um, you know we, we hope it continues. We continue to we have a, a dynamic um, product development group. And our goal is that every year or so we are introducing some other um, product that can be part of um, our assortment. And in the last year or so, we introduced a technology hub, which can be inserted into the side of one of our sectionals where you can plug in your USB cables and, and um, electrical. Oh, that's really cool. And, you know, we've got other very intriguing and interesting things that are planned um, for the first quarter of this year. We had um, 
unfortunately were delayed from the third quarter of last year when we were going to do another major product release. But first quarter of this year, I would definitely encourage the, the watchers to, to be on the lookout for a, another dynamic product release that's going to catapult us into uh, just another level of, of, you know, of retail and, and, and revenue performance. We are going to take a quick break here. And now a word from one of our sponsors. LeasePilot is a cloud-based platform that connects your drafting language and asset information to a powerful data-driven backend that understands the underlying logic of your entire document. So when you add, say, an extension option, LeasePilot will adjust the term recalculate the rent tables, and update the assignment provisions automatically. In short, drafts get out the door faster, and the critical information in your lease is always online, providing an instant abstracts and direct connection to your existing CRM and ERP systems. To learn more, visit leasepilot.co. I just wanted to say I can't say enough about LeasePilot. We are a customer of LeasePilot at DLC. The software is phenomenal. Their service is incredible. And we are now getting leases out the door much faster than we ever could without this product. I want to thank LeasePilot. And if you haven't checked them out, you need to go to their website, leasepilot.co. Well, listen, that was great. I want to take us to the the, the next part of the show, which uh, people love, which is the story. And hoping you have a, a good story about a, a deal that you had been a part of. And uh, tell us where we're going. Which uh, which where location are we? Yeah, I mean, there. I, I think um, I was thinking about this yesterday. I think I've probably done thirteen or fourteen hundred, you know, uh, retail deals in my career. <laughs> so been around a long time. I've always loved uh, the city of Chicago. My my dad went to Northwestern, and so met a lot of my grandparents lived there. So, always had a, an affinity there. So, when I got hired at Lovesack, we we set out a strategy for that market and um, identified several trade areas that were voids for us. And and one of them was Naperville, which is a western suburb, a very affluent um, trade area, and there's a downtown. Um, Main Street there uh, of retail that has a lot of the who's who of, of great um, tenants, uh, Lululemon and Apple and uh, Chico's White House, et cetera, and so on, Pottery Barn. So a lot of great retail. And so we, we, we work with a couple of really good brokers in Chicago and um, they, they found a location on this main street called West Jefferson that was had the right frontage and, and the right bones for us. And so um, we started dialogue with the landlord about, um, you know, locating there. And he said, you know, I think you guys are more of a, of a showroom than you are like a store. And there's some pretty strict restrictions on, um, on, first level retail, you ought to inquire with the city about what, what those are to make sure that you're in the clear to move forward and do a deal with us here. So the long story short is 
Naperville, interestingly enough, banned first level or street level showrooms. And we, they, they identified us as a showroom because it's not really a cash and carry type of a, of a business as we discussed. So what that meant was we had to go through a variance process. Wow. So the next, and fortunately the landlord was very patient, willing to, to wait and work with us. So the next uh, hearing was in, I think, two and a half weeks. And we had to assemble a lot of information from the city, notify neighboring tenants, et cetera, put a sign in the window. So we go through all this stuff. I fly to Chicago. I sit before um, the city council. We were the last uh, group on the agenda. Oh, so I've been in those meetings. So that could be, that could be two hours you were sitting there. <laughs> and I'm hearing about all kinds of the rock quarry and the CB, uh, the, the marijuana retailer that they're debating. I mean, it was so, of course, with my luck, we're, we end up going last. And um, it was all about this ban that they had on first, first level. And they had, they had prevented other concepts from going in there, like Shade Store and California Closets. And wow. they've been unsuccessful in the past. So a little bit of an uphill battle. But fortunately, there's great interaction with the city council. And they you know, unanimously approved us. And I think a lot of it is because our, our stores generate a lot of volume. I think they were seeing some tax do dollars there that would benefit them. And so we got it approved and then the pandemic hits, <laughs> you know, oh a few, couple months later. So these, this, this, the owner of this building was unbelievably patient. You know, we didn't know what the future was going to hold for new showrooms during that March, April time period, we were able to come back to them and, and tell them like we did with all the, um, the deals that we had teed up that were approved, but had no leases signed that we, we did in fact want to move forward and honor the deals that we had negotiated, move to lease. We went to lease and um, uh, there in Naperville, got our permit and, you know, knock on wood, we're under construction. We're going to open the end of February. And, um, you know, it's just one interesting story is we, you know, how, how a location and you're, you're so good at this because I watched a lot of these other pockets. How did that store get there? Right. Um, and we all have these just, you know, I think great, um, uh, recollections of these odd deals and this and that, but that's a recent one. Um, and, you know, hopefully I'll get invited on sometime in the future and I could rip off dozens more that I think the listeners would find pretty interesting. So I, one, a market, a lot of people know Naperville and it's a great market. And I had no, I, I know the market. Well, I had no idea that they had this uh, first floor level showroom ban, which I've heard of a lot. That's not one I've heard of. You know, a lot of we deal with drive through moratoriums and things like this, but I had not heard of a suburb having this. And that is totally fascinating. What, what you mentioned the revenue tax dollars, what got them over the hump? You think, you know, I think it was <clears throat> obviously it's always timing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. It's like, what, uh, you know, I was jaded in thinking that this would be fairly easy. There's always an element of doubt, 
but I think we were, we were very well prepared to tell them about the company, the story. We showed photos of what the storefronts look like, other similar um, village street locations or high street, however you want to define them. And so they were very impressed with the, the level of craftsmanship and detail that our design team has with respect to the layout and the presentation of the store to the consumer. Um, so I think that was probably the biggest, you know, the biggest um, benefit that we, that we had um, the biggest, you know, one of the biggest selling points. And um, you know, the other, I guess the nugget that I dropped in the conversation was that um, unlike other use uses that may fill a space like that, whether it's apparel or, um, you know, a restaurant, our average sales are, you know, extremely high on a per square foot basis. And the the ancillary benefit to them for approving our use, not just to service the customers in the trade area and the, the number of jobs we'll create, is that you're going to get, um, you know, tax revenue that's going to be greater than other uses that you, you know, the landlord would consider putting in there. And, you know, that made it a pretty open and shut case, honestly. Got it. What is the average per square foot across the the, the fleet on the sales? Yeah, it's greater than $2,000 a foot. So, um, <laughs> wow. On the selling, on the sell the sales floor area. So, which is all public information, but, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's unbelievable to me. And what we've seen over the last, couple of years in 2019 our comp store sales were 34 percent um you know we're we're down because uh we were closed uh for you know two or three months in 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 2020 but again we've we've shown post pandemic we're able to reopen and third quarter you know again we resume this 30 plus percent comp store growth um even despite traffic being down etc so um yeah, we're we're really a brand that's that's clicking on all cylinders and just happy to get along for the ride. One or two more things on this topic, because this is a fascinating story and you that that you've told here. At some point, did you say, you know what, I need to be in Naperville, but you know what? Maybe I'm I'm moving off of this street. I don't want to go through with this. Or did you say to yourself, you know what? I'm gonna plow through this because we want to be here. You know, that's a great question. Because there's a lot of retail in Naperville. There's a lot of good retail in Naperville, not just there. Yeah. I mean, if we chose to go somewhere else besides downtown, we wouldn't have that that issue, right? But that's where our customer shops. Um, that's where the better retail is located. And through my experience, and I did a Francesca's deal there, you know, several years ago. And when it opened up in the right location on that street, it did phenomenal volume, uh, much greater than average. So, you know, as real estate professionals, we draw on experiences and that that helps form our decision-making processes as we, as we look at new opportunities. And in Naperville, <clears throat> I was a hundred percent convicted that uh, in, at 100% conviction and was convinced that, that being on West Jefferson was absolutely the right decision. And when we were told about this <clears throat> ban on first floor uh, or street level um, you know, showrooms and the fact that the landlord was had already been kind of patient as we 
started negotiating the letter of intent. And now we have to face a, um, you know, a variance process. And the next meeting was in two weeks. I'm like, you know, we can't wait another month after that. We, we have to make that meeting in two weeks. And so fortunately, we've got two great brokers there um, in Chicago with McCaffrey interests that were able to go to the city, get all the information that we had to disseminate to the local, you know, um, uh, tenants that were in close proximity. They put the sign in the window. We got on the agenda. We called the city and, and asked them, you know, if we do all these things, uh, can we make that, um, you know, make that city council agenda? Agenda, and they said yes. They were they were great to work with, and so we 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 pulled it together in a very very short period of time. And um, you know, I think it earned a lot of credibility with not just the city but the landlord that were willing to do it. So anyway, long story short, we could have easily just said, ah, this is too much work. But that would have been a disservice to the company, and and it 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 would have um, it, it would have led to I think the, the absolutely the wrong decision there for where we should locate in that market and how we can put the you know put the best foot forward to the the customer and locate a store where we're going to be the most successful. Fantastic story. Thank you for sharing that. That was a. That was a great one. Uh, and what a unique scenario that happened recently. Yeah. All right, Clary, it's been, it's, uh, this has been great. I want to take you to the last part of the show called Retail Wisdom. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. And for the listeners out there, there's three new questions. <laughs> Question one, what extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? And there are a lot of them. I mean, a lot of good businesses that that I, you know, frequented in the past. Um, you know, I would tell you um, that uh, my time at Payless when I when I first um, came out of undergraduate school and was in finance, and I actually got my MBA when I was. They paid for my MBA. So a lot of great people that worked there, and I learned so much. And they served a great niche, I think, with um, you know with with the consumer. And it's sad that brand's gone. And so I think for a lot of um, people out there, they, they had 4,500 stores at their peak in the United States. And um, and there's a lot of brand loyalty there uh, with that consumer. And they, they served a niche for uh, people that couldn't afford expensive footwear. So um, on the spot, if I had to pick one, I'd say, you know, I really wish Payless Shoe Source would come back. Awesome, great answer. That might be, you might be the first one to say Payless. So I'm, I'm excited you did. So, <laughs> I'm excited yeah, you did. Probably so. But, uh, you know, they were really good to me as, as a, as a young, uh, you know, uh, professional and, but more importantly, they, they really did service, you know, serve a, a need for consumers and affordable fo- affordable quality footwear. And totally agree. There are other places to get, you know, um, inexpensive footwear today, but, uh, you know, I wish those guys could come back. Yeah. The, the two most popular, just so you know, most popular answers is very consistent are Toys R Us and Blockbuster. Those are the two that people say all the time. So that's why I'm very happy you said, uh, I got, hey, I got great, great memories of, uh, Toys R Us as a kid. I remember, yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, making good grades in school and, and, uh, my, my parents would get my brother and I, 
the last day of school, we get a hundred bucks. We get to go to Toys R Us and buy anything you want, you know, we want. And, and I'm telling you, 25 years ago, a hundred bucks was just like, you know, amazing. So Toys R Us is a great answer too. So that brings me to the next question, which is new question. What's the last thing you purchased in a store over $20? Uh, so my wife's birthday was yesterday and, uh, with Christmas, New Year's, uh, completely a blur. I didn't forget about her birthday, but I also wasn't as prepared to purchase something in advance for her birthday. So I went to the Galleria mall on Tuesday. I went to a high end luxury store, bought her a nice gift and it was definitely over 20 bucks. <laughs> Got it. Okay. And she liked it a lot. So <laughs> that's you know, all that matters. That's all that matters. No idea when I bought it the day before the whole thing, <laughs> whatever, but it was, it was kind of on a, she'd mentioned that she wanted it and they fortunately had one left. And, uh, I don't think I, I don't think I've ever spent that much on a gift before, uh, but she really liked it and that's what matters. So I was, I'm glad that she was happy. All right, here we go. Last question. If we lost you in Target, what aisle would we find you in? You know, that's a great one. And I thought about it a lot. I think my first response is going to be probably um, probably sporting goods. Okay. Uh, I'd be looking at golf clubs, golf balls, or, or something of the sort. Um, I think the second place, maybe a close second, would be electronics. So looking at flat screen TVs and how much they cost and you know, how heavy that flat screen is in my bedroom and how much <laughs> lighter these are and wider and brighter. Um, so I'd probably be daydreaming about, you know, that next electronics purchase too. Awesome. Well, listen, Clary, this was great. Thank you so much. I wish you nothing but continued success, man. This is a great overall story and uh, love watching you guys and uh, rooting for you. No, I appreciate it. I, I love what you're doing. I think you provide a great service to the retail real estate community. I find these podcasts just so engaging and fascinating. Many people that you have on, I know I'm good friends with. It's interesting to hear them tell their stories and answer these questions, um, you know, similar questions. And uh, like I said, I, I my hat's off to you for uh, for what you do, the service you provide, and I'm I'm just flattered that you uh, invited me to be on. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at Retail Retold at DLC mgmt.com this show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives so it doesn't matter if you are a retailer broker entrepreneur architect or an attorney also don't forget to subscribe to retail retold so you don't miss out on next thursday's episode